you are cleared for docking. Come on board Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven. We help you find truth in fantastic stories, and we apply this truth in the real world that our captain, Jesus Christ, commands us to serve. I am E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven. And I'm Zachary Russell, but in space, it's easier to call me Zach. This is episode 11, What If Your Suicidal Space Battle Failed and Then You Defected to the Enemy? And that is the plot of Kathy Tyers' space opera novel Firebird, which was first launched in 1987, and it's part of a trilogy, then part of a biology, however you call that, Stephen? A quintology? Quint- I would quintology. have to look that up. Yes. There we go. We'll put it and, in the show notes. And we are going to be joined by her today talking all about her book and other books. So although this is an older title, it has been through several refinishes. It is a sturdy craft and has been uh, only polished and improved as the years have gone on. Lorehaven Magazine, in our newest issue, the spring 2020 issue, uh, has the cover story, The Best of Christian Fantasy. And I enlisted the Firebird series in that story. We reviewed the series. You can go to lorehaven.com and get a free subscription to that magazine. Get new issues with Christian fantasy reviews every season of the year. Download your free copies there. The review of Firebird has this to say. I actually wrote it. Quote, Lady Firebird Angelo has grown up knowing she might someday die for her people. As the third-born daughter of the royal family of the planet Natea, she is trained for combat as a wasteling destined for suicide. Unfortunately, during her first engagement in space, she fails. Firebird is captured alive by the enemy. This galactic federacy employs Firebird's new captor, Field General Brennan Caldwell, who is both intriguing and supernaturally telepathic. Their encounter leads to the first of Lady Firebird's drastic life changes in Firebird Book 1 of Kathy Tyre's Firebird series. Tyre's described Firebird's original version from Bantam Books as a cultural conversion story. Yet since then, newer versions from Christian publishers enhanced Brennan's commitment to an eternal speaker. That unseen entity has promised a divine messiah who hasn't yet arrived. Tyres deftly describes other worlds, adding color to landscapes and intensity to emotions, especially in those my mind to your mind entanglements. Firebird's musical talent adds even more atmosphere not often seen in fiction, much less space opera. This trilogy, continued years later in books four and five, Wind and Shadow and Daystar, marks a fantastic find for Christian fans and beyond. We are now joined by the creator of Firebird and many other space opera and science fiction novels, Kathy Tyers. She has also written two of the now legendary Expanded Universe novels for Star Wars. The Firebird series is her magnum opus so far, five books. She's also written A Shivering World, uh, which was a recent Christie Award winner. And then she is coming out with a, uh, a repolish of her novel Crystal Witness, another science fiction novel. Enclave Publishing is re-releasing that book this summer. Kathy, welcome. Uh, for my part, it's great to talk with you again, and it's great to introduce you to our podcast audience. Thank you very much, Stephen. It's really nice to talk with you again as well. Well, you too. Uh, not sure if we'll be able to meet in person because of all of the viral mess that's going on this year, but this is the next best thing. For our listeners, But what is your origin story? How did you jump into operatic space? Well, that's a really good question. I discovered science fiction when I was about 11 years old. I was browsing the junior high section of the public library, and I found a a book with the fascinating title Star Conquerors. It was by a fellow I'd never heard of named Ben Bova. And it turns out that was his very first novel. I read it. I was totally hooked. 
it wasn't much longer that I also uh, became absolutely nuts about Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and everything Hobbit, but I still loved a really good space adventure. Fast forward to when I was a young mom, I had a two-year-old who took fantastic naps, and I thought, well, this would be a great time in my life to do something just for me. So I wrote uh, the first draft of a, a novel. It was essentially a Star Wars fan fiction, and I had a ball doing it. And once I finished that first draft, I read it all the way through and went, by golly, that's pretty good. So I joined a writer's group. I learned how to self-edit. I learned terms like point of view and dialogue tags and things like that, and really, really started working on it. And about 100 drafts later, yes, that's 100 with two zeros, I sold it to Bantam Books in New York, which was far beyond my wildest hopes, but it was great fun. It was an exciting time in my life. Wow. And that's the book that became uh, Firebird, published by Bantam? Yes, it is, actually. Awesome. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. I've got some questions uh, for you. One of your super fans named Joanna, she sent us some great questions to ask you. But before we get to that, I'd like for you to give our listeners an overview of Firebird. So I've read the first book, and then I know that there is a, a really big galactic alternate history that happens. But why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the story itself and then some of that larger story that it's set inside? Well, the story itself is the story of a young woman who's an extraneous heiress of the royal family of her home world. And once her older sister has secured the succession by having a couple of offspring, then our, our hero and Firebird is expected to somehow seek a noble death that will bring glory to her home world. Well, having been trained as a, a fighter pilot there, that's pretty easy. She gets sent off on a ridiculous mission to a, a world that really has not threatened her home world at all. And things get interesting from there, let's just say. The backstory to the Firebird universe, for those of you who haven't figured it out or haven't even heard of it yet, is that in this universe, go back way to when Gabriel appears to, to Mary and says, you're going to have God's son. And Mary says, yes. Well, in my universe, she says, oh, no, please choose somebody else. So what happens is that the comet that was going to be the star of Bethlehem and is deflected along by the angels to lead the wise men to, uh, to the, the Messiah, uh, it, it hits the Mediterranean instead. And basically, uh, Earth gets knocked back to the Stone Age and we start over. So in that particular universe, the Messiah has not come yet. And uh, one of the enjoyable things about the Firebird saga, I guess, is it's a series, is that we have a family living in expectation of the Messiah eventually coming. But in those first three books, he does not come yet. So they're still living in expectation. And when I read the first three books, I also didn't know that this was the backstory. And to me, it was a, uh, you know, to coin a phrase a long time ago in a galaxy far away, a parallel world. And even though you, you were using some Hebrew terms and such, it didn't even occur to me that, oh, this could be an alternate history slash future for our Earth. I originally wrote it exactly that way, Stephen. Um, and when it was published by Bantam, that's the way it was. However, 
when Steve Lobby acquired it for Bethany House Publishers, he challenged me. He said, you're using Hebrew terms. I think it really ought to be linked to earth. So I, I thought it through. How, how did this really happen? I mean, as a Tolkien geek, many times I have kind of channeled his writing process. And um, when he felt that something new was happening. He felt more like he was discovering what had been there all along. So I kind of felt like I was discovering an alternate history that had been there all along. I just hadn't known about it until I went back and wrote Crown of Fire. Awesome. My next question for you, Kathy, is about one of the major characters in Firebird named Brennan Caldwell. And so I'll make this kind of a two-parter. So who, tell our listeners who is Brennan. And for Joanna, uh, Joanna wants a full history of Brennan Caldwell. She says, quote, I still want to know what went down that mission that won him a reprimand and a commendation. I want a full backstory or a side story or whatever. <laughs> so she's asking for the Tolkien style appendices that really should have gone at the end of, uh, of the third Firebird book. Yes. <laughs> that, that mission at Gemini that won him the uh, service cross. Yes. I have no idea. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It sounds I only like a know. fan fiction invitation to me. <clears throat> there you go. Go ahead, Joanna. It's all yours. Yeah, Brennan is, he is at, at the opening of Firebird, he is a member of this, the family into which the Messiah has been predicted to be born, but he's got an older brother, so he doesn't need to worry about that. He has gone into service. Um, he is one of a group of people who call themselves sentinels during the interregnum went between earth and our story his his forefathers dabbled in genetic engineering and created telepathy which instead of unfortunately instead of creating worldwide peace the way they thought it was going to it uh, absolutely fractured the society the haves and the have nots fought each other and released bioweapons, kind of like COVID, actually, uh, except they killed everybody. And so this remnant survived and colonized Brennan's homeworld of Therica, or actually arrived there as refugees. They're still a minority. They always have been a minority. They always will be a minority, partly because the plot wouldn't work any other way, and partly because I don't think that in a real world of something so... Um, unusual as mind reading would be given to an entire race of fallen human beings. It's trouble for us. We're not made to know that much about each other. And the more I thought it through, the more dangerous it sounded to me. So my villains, the sure, who basically have unleashed their um, selfishness and are breeding for better telepathic qualities and things like that, they became not just a challenge to write, but an exciting challenge because, yeah, if if we were not held back by God's word, by our brothers and sisters in the church, by the love of God, we would become like that if we had more than human abilities. Oh, that's that's wonderful. That that helps me uh, really understand where this is coming from and. It sounds to me like, even though it's a totally different universe than the one we live in, it's still one where God is present. Uh, would would you say that's true? It's, it's still the same. There, there's still a lot of biblical elements of this story. Yes, absolutely. Um, a Firebird's people have uh, created an alternate religion, more or less based on serving the government. But yes, God is present uh, in a big way in the Firebird universe. And I, I read something else you wrote, which was 
It's a Messiah tale, but not a gospel. It focuses more closely on the people around him than on his life story like Ben-Hur. So can, can you tell me a little bit about that? That would be book five, Daystar. And there are two contenders for the Messiahship in Daystar. And part of the challenge early on is which one is the real thing. Well, you wrote the original Firebird trilogy and then came back for those last two books, Wind and Shadow and then Daystar, uh, which for me, even though I was not a very early adopter of the the original Firebird books, I believe I first read them in the early 2000s. I got that big uh, Bethany House uh, three-in-one uh, collection uh, with, with a cool blue and violet cover. Uh, I still have that on my bookshelf. It was a great cover. I mean, you've been blessed yes. with many very cool covers for all of these books. And yet the uh, when it was still uh, March at Lord Press, now called Enclave, little inside publisher baseball here. Sorry, folks. They actually put out the last two books of the series. So turning it from a trilogy to a, a five book series. What brought you back uh, to do those uh, to do those final two books? I always wanted it to be a five-book series, although I really did not intend at the beginning to finish it quite so decisively. But um, after writing Crown of Fire, my career more or less tanked due to some intense issues um, at home. So I laid my career basically at the foot of the cross and backed away and said, okay, Lord, it's all yours. I did not write at all for a while. I went off to uh, Vancouver, BC in Canada to a wonderful graduate school called Regent College. That is a plug for sure. I was able to do a master's degree and write a science fiction novel and accompanying theological paper as my master's thesis. Wow. And I thought, oh, this sounds like a dream come true. I was on my own by then. My first husband had passed away. And I spent a couple of years up in Canada in the company of creative, intelligent, cheerful, supportive, international, wonderful, interdenominational Christians, and got a real solid underpinning for why the arts are so important to the creator. He created matter. He made it beautiful. He made it good. And he challenged his image bearers, us, to do the same thing. So I wondered at that point. What about those twins? Um, sorry, it is a spoiler. Those <laughs> twins that Firebird and Brennan had. What would they grow up to be like? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, I've already planted the seed on that. They have very different personalities from birth. So that became wind and shadow. And then I started having ideas. Well, what about the generation after that? And that was the genesis of Daystar. Uh, Kathy, you and I actually spoke several years ago about your time at Regent and uh, some of the rebirth of that creative energy that you described. I remember in particular, uh, there was a, you had uh, you'd gone back to some of your earlier work and, uh, and done, done some uh, little remixing, a little, uh, little extra editing there just based on what you had learned. And I just, it's really cool to hear that it was a greater exposure to biblical truth and biblical teaching and ideas and that kind of intellectually stimulating environment that is driving the creative process for you. And I, I think that really comes through in your stories. Thank you. I really, really appreciate that. While I was an enthusiastic Christian for many, many years before I went off to Regent College, it basically, I had my, my faith, my eschatological expectations deconstructed, reconstructed, recombined, refreshed. It was wonderful. And Regent is doing their summer school program entirely online this summer. So if any of you have never 
been exposed, you might go look to, at regent-college.edu and see some of the fabulous courses that you could take this summer from home. Kathy, I love that you said you deconstructed some things in your belief, but you reconstructed your faith even stronger. I mean, that is just what we talked about on our last episode, that so often people that deconstruct certain and, and maybe harmful aspects of their faith, they, they kind of stay stuck there and they don't deconstruct you know, secular narratives or, or other beliefs that have kind of crowded in. But I, I love that you built a stronger faith. And I read a comment from someone on one of your articles. This was from uh, someone named Michelle who said, quote, I believe many read these books and thought, yes, someone who isn't afraid to combine a Christian message with starships, end quote. <laughs> and I just, I love that because I feel like too often we put theology in the arts at odds with one another. But I feel like your journey has proved the opposite to be true, hasn't it? The opposite is totally true. Uh, Andy Crouch wrote a book called Culture Making. Oh, it's fantastic. And we are called to by our God to be artists and gardeners. He says that in the very first chapter. And I go, yes, because those are the two things that I love most, my vegetable garden and my writing. So, Kathy, you, you mentioned a little bit ago about these kind of evil villains called the Shure. And you talked a little bit about how you moved from a, a secular publisher to a Christian publisher. Did any of that change for you, you know, in terms of like the content that you wrote? And, and what, are your, what are your thoughts about that? Oh, boy. Yes, that's an excellent question. The book uh, in the Firebird series that changed the most between a secular publisher and a Christian publisher was Fusion Fire. Because in Fusion Fire, we actually have a lot of scenes that take place among sure. And the Bantam version had some minor plot elements and some scenes that really troubled me. Um, even after I had written them and they were published, um, I thought, yeah, I'm supposed to write evil, icky, creepy villains, but they don't need to be quite that evil, icky. and Well, they are that evil, but they're not that quite that creepy and icky. You can do that much more subtly without rubbing it in your readers' faces. The very idea of people wanting to dominate other people is creepy enough. Well, it is, and particularly in Fusion Fire, it's a, am I pronouncing this correctly? Firebird's sister, Fina. Fina, is, yes. Yes. She is creepy enough just being such a narcissist and so such a sociopath in the way that she seeks to dominate others and, uh, and the, the, uh, the, hidden nature of her villainy is I thought enough of a villain to render that book in not in need of any others, at least in my view for having only read that version of it. Yeah. Yeah. Fina is a real creep. Well, I love that the things that you changed weren't, it doesn't sound like it was under some sort of external pressure, but it was this internal motivation you had to out of your, out of love for your readers. And it, you said it was something that even just troubled you. The more you, reconstructed your faith. It was something that didn't reflect you anymore. Does that sound about right? Well, I rewrote it long before I went up to Regent College. So it was more a matter of thinking through the different audience. A, a, a novelist is always challenged to have their audience in mind as they are writing. And being really aware of that is is important. I do a, a bit of mentoring and I have got a little writer's group going and we're always challenging people who want to write their own book. The first thing that comes to your mind is my book is written for everybody everywhere. 
And so you're going to sell millions of copies. In most cases, that's not true. In most cases, you are writing for a very particular group of people. And part of the task of being a published author is finding the people who are looking for what it is that you are trying to write. So I think I became more aware of, and as you say, loving toward my readers in the rewrite of Fusion Fire. Um, Firebird itself wasn't very much rewritten at all, a little more polish. I had learned a good bit more about the writing craft, even though I originally sold my hundredth draft of Firebird to Bantam Books. It still had some first book issues, and hopefully they're gone now, most of them. Well, let's zoom out a little bit and talk about what can science fiction or space opera do that other genres can't really do. That's a tough one. Because I am just as much a Tolkien geek as a Star Wars original trilogy geek. Hey, why not both? (laughs) Why not both? Exactly. There are things that speculative fiction can do that it's difficult for other genres to do because it gives us a bit more emotional distance from the exact situation, more cultural distance from the situation. If you have Two people on earth from different political parties, say, arguing about an issue, that's going to, your readers are going to have hackles raised and sides chosen to begin with when they first read about whatever it is, this truth that they're discussing or arguing about. Now, on the other hand, if you have an elf and a dwarf arguing about it, or people from two different planets arguing about it, then people can come and look at truth with fresher eyes. Uh, we didn't originally include any Star Wars questions here. Kathy, do you feel comfortable getting into that or do you want to move on? When I was writing Crown of Fire for Bethany House for Steve Lobby, I got the call to do a second Star Wars novel. And at that point, I had already said, oh, I am over Star Wars. I want to write my own book. And I'm like, Steve, this is what I'm thinking. He's like, are you nuts? Write the Star Wars book because <laughs> your Star Wars book will bring in people who would not have read your Christian fiction otherwise. Your next novel Gavi is called Crystal Witness. Uh, this also is a story that uh, you've published before, and in fact, I've read it before. Is heading into the the, uh, the orbiting dock uh, for a little refurbishment. It's got, of course, a brand new, gorgeous cover. Enclave yes. is putting it out. What is that story? That story is essentially a palace intrigue in space. The main character is essentially a slave in a uh, a palace situation where there are dark things going on and she gets both threatened and recruited by both sides in the intrigue and she is caught in the middle and has to figure out how she's going to jump. Space travel is at this time controlled by an evil monopoly called Renasco, which stands for the Renaissance Shielding Corporation. And our main character, Ming, does not remember what she did to offend Renasco, doesn't even find out until the book is nearly over. And the world falls apart and chaos ensues. And so that is Crystal Witness kind of in a nutshell. Also, um, Ming has been trained in three-dimensional calligraphy using injection pens. So it becomes art fiction as much as science fiction, which is something that I, as a musician, have always loved sneaking into my books. 
Well, you have stories that include both those operatic references, even in the headings of the original Firebird, and also plenty of science. I mean, you get into terraforming and you know some, some lighter sci-fi elements, more like space opera and other books, but then you get into some harder sci-fi in other I books. I do. My undergrad degree was in microbiology. So I did learn how scientists think, which, you know, even though nearly, well, a lot of what I studied back then, it has been superseded and lab techniques have, are, are different. Knowing how a particular group of people think and how they process is very useful for um, extending them into a future society. But I also grew up in a musical family. I played flute. As ever since I was old enough to, to, uh, to that my mother would let me play on it. So the way that those musical subheadings came into existence is when I was writing Firebird for the first time, I was also working on a flute piece called Poem by Griffiths. And uh, the, the very last instructions to the performer, uh, this particular section was Allegro con fuoco, which means fast with fire. And I thought, oh, that would make a great chapter title. And I thought, wait a minute, I could probably come up with instructions to the performer for everything in the book. So I did that. As I recall, in Crown of Fire, they were all dance types. Um, That was fun. This is so fascinating to me, Kathy, because you really have a great intersection of science with art. And you talked earlier about having a combination of speculation as well as reverence. And I, I feel like that gives us a much bigger picture of who we are in Christ and who God has created us to be as a creator, as a, as a creator who made science and art and artistically amazing things that are just scientifically fascinating. So I love this kind of fuller picture that you're giving through your work. Do you have any comments about that, about the Christian imagination, about finding art and theology and, and science and, and music and how all that combines together? We are supposed to be image bearers for a vastly creative God. Everything that is science came from his hand. Everything that is art and beauty came from his hand. And I either blessed or cursed with an inability to choose just one and focus. The old jack of all trades and master of none saying (laughs) cliche uh, comes to mind. I, I want to know it all. I want to try it all. This is a beautiful, beautiful world. Uh, and there is beauty in science. And there is science to music. And there are techniques to writing. And it all interconnects. And one of the things that most breaks my heart is how we are increasingly expected to take sides and create all of these conflicts between left and right and arts and science. And I, I oh, it, it, it breaks my heart. And I, I hope that if, if in some small way I can inspire other people to bridge those, those gaps, I will be a very happy person. Kathy, you are singing my song in prose. <laughs> not not only have we explored these and we'll continue to explore this on future Fantastical Truths uh, podcast, uh, but we, we just recently explored uh, the idea that God, despite being in three persons, is a unified whole. Three persons, one God, that is biblical theology and it reflects in how he's created us it is sin and rebellion that splits us apart in so many ways and even in the way that we split apart knowledge and facts and rationality versus images and creativity and imagination i think it is uh, for for the christian who 
is redeemed is getting reconnected to that idea of that unified image bearing of God in science, in facts, rationality, and in images and creative uh, imagination, uh, which leads me to my question about your future, your creative uh, future. And we understand that you have some other world creations in the works, and we would be remiss if we did not ask further about what's ahead for you and the worlds that you're putting together. Thank you, Stephen. When I was proofreading Crystal Witness this time around, getting it ready for Enclave, uh, bringing it out this summer, I started wondering, well, what happens next? Now, I should have known at that point, since that was exactly what sparked Wind and Shadow, that there might be a, a time commitment uh, coming out of that question. <laughs> but I, I started thinking about it. I started jotting down notes. Um, in the world of Crystal Witness, I thought, well, what does come next? Because in Crystal Witness, partly because it was originally written on a very, very tight timeline for a secular publisher, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of God's presence in that story. Well, why not? And coming up with solutions to that and what happens when uh, the long silence ends uh, gave me shivers, and I started um, sending those pages of brainstorming to my wonderful editor, Steve Lobby. And he said, let's run with this, and sent me a contract for a trilogy. So the new series is going to be called The Sunstone Saga. The first book in the series is The Long Silence. I am working on the rough draft now. Takes me about a year to write a book. I am a slow writer, and if I actually have super fans, God bless you, and I can't believe that I do. But anyway, thank you. And I am sorry that the process is so slow. But if I want to write books that really honor God, and if I really want to do it well, they cannot be fast books. So there will be tentatively, you know, if if, if the Lord tarries and all that, uh, a book a year. And the first book is due on my publisher's desk next March, which means it will probably be out maybe December 2021. That is not a promise. I do not know for sure. But I am having an awful lot of fun with it. The Long Silence has a dual plot. One character is in space um, on a warship that's trying to, create, trying to prevent a planetary catastrophe. The other character is planet side and let's just say he has a burning bush experience just as a dangerous prisoner gets loose and overthrows the government i'm having fun yeah, you had me at spaceships kathy i mean i'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> but i mean that that sounds even more amazing than i i could have imagined and i've got shivering world on my shelf so that'll keep me busy until uh, the sunstone saga comes out and, and speaking of Shivering World, I have one more question from Joanna, the superfan. She asks, what happened to everyone? Did they all survive? Is the little wildcat kitten okay? I'm at least as concerned about that wildcat kitten as I am about the two lead characters, maybe more. <laughs> so feel free to give a, a, a spoiler-free answer to that. But of course, we are very concerned about kittens here. Uh, Joanna, Dutchie is fine. He will be totally fine. I have been asked numerous times what happens after Shivering World because, yes, it ends in a terrible place for an ending. 
uh, it definitely calls for a sequel. I would rather not even try to write a sequel than write a poor one. So if the Lord gives me a storyline for what happens next, fine. Um, but yes, the kitten um, is is fine. I'm so glad to hear that, Kathy. <laughs> and um, what's the best way for Joanna and other fans to reach out to you to get in touch with you? I don't hang out on my website. I don't have Twitter. Um, I have a Facebook page. And there's also good old-fashioned snail mail. P.O. Box 11837, Bozeman, Montana, 59719. I do answer stuff that comes in, although I have not been out of the house to the post office in about a month. Uh, so eventually, hopefully, I will get that. Fans can also find out more about Kathy's uh, many worlds that she has put together by simply going to kathytires.com. You'll get the full listing of books there and uh, any other way that uh, she has of being contacted. Kathy, thank you so much for visiting us. Uh, what I hope will be the first of at least a few times. Uh, we may have to invite you back uh, once Crystal Witness is out. And then, of course, with this a new trilogy coming up would bring many other opportunities for exploring. Uh, we'd love to dive back into these issues, uh, not just the uh, the fun character twists, uh, but also the, uh, the the bigger themes of combining imagination and rationality. Just God bless you. Thank you so much for what you do. And I hope that uh, we will be able to help bring you at least a few more fans, super or otherwise, uh, through this conversation. Thank you, Stephen. It's always a pleasure to see you, even if it's only staring at a computer monitor. Thank you, Zach, for making it possible. Uh, thank you, um, Joanna and others, for the questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kathy. And now let's hear from the fantastic fans, starting with Azalea D., she wrote a comment on the Spec Faith article about episode 10. Quote, I really appreciate your podcast. A lot of good points and food for thought. Your points about how you are feeding your imagination, what you're enjoying, and how is it magnifying your desires struck a bell. Since I've been thinking along those lines concerning reading fantasy and how to tell good from bad, as well as how to relate that good and bad to others in a way that they can understand. This is a subject close to my heart. I feel our Christian reading family needs to gain discernment in this area since we are supposed to at least be trying to see truth and to see what is false. If we do not see it, we may swallow it whole with ramifications we don't realize at first. End quote. Thank you, Azalea, for writing us that comment. I love where she phrased the Christian reading family. That may be a phrase that I adopt into my personal vernacular. Our next fantastic fan feedback comes from Jason V. I think we featured him before, and I think I actually know this man. He writes about episode nine in which we explored Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness. Quote, you guys are incredible, dredging up all these half-forgotten memories of my youth. First, Salty, the singing songbook. Now, This Present Darkness. This book was the talk of my junior high youth group in 1987 to 88. I remember reading it then as a seventh grader, but can't recall many specific reactions or thoughts I had at the time other than it was a good, scary read. Thankfully, our leaders didn't go so far as to use the book as a literal spiritual warfare manual. I did meet Frank Peretti years later when he was touring with his country folk bluegrass band Northern Cross. A very nice guy, great storyteller, and a talented banjo player to boot. Thanks for the great episode. Keep up the good work. End quote. Thank you, Jason. And finally, we have a fantastical reader origin story from Grant J. He said, quote, My love of reading started with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
It blew my mind when I found out there were six more books, end quote. Thanks, Grant, for sending us that. And to you, our listener, have you read Firebird or any of Kathy Tyres' stories? Share your thoughts or share your thoughts about our evergreen question, how did you become a fantastical reader? You can go to lorehaven.com and use the feedback form or email us at podcast at lorehaven.com. And we'd also love for you to sign up the magazine and find out about more books by Kathy Tires and other authors. In our next episode of Fantastical Truth, we are starting a new series, very timely one for this Easter season. It's a resurrection series called Epic Resurrection. I think we have finalized that title. Very well themed after Easter Sunday slash Resurrection Sunday. But instead, we're going to explore that resurrection glory all month long with questions like, what does resurrection really mean? How does it change our view of ourselves? How does it change our whole planet, even the universe? And finally, one of my personal favorite topics to explore, how does resurrection, the resurrection that Jesus has promised for all who believe in him, change our view of fantastic stories? I don't think you're going to want to miss this one. This week, stay strong, even in challenging times. Keep your airlocks closed and find plenty to do inside the craft. Find amazing worlds to explore for the glory of God and return with us next week as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth. <laughs>